Today we continue our series in Romans, and uh, today we're going to cover chapter 3 of Romans. So grab your Bibles out and follow along uh, as we begin our service, though, let's, let's pray. Dear God, we ask today that you open our ears to hear and our hearts to respond to your word. May you teach us and inspire us from your scriptures today, I pray. Amen. You know, when I was in high school, one thing that I aspired to uh, pretty much from the first day I got there in grade seven was to be a prefect when I got to the last year of my high school, which was year 10. Um, And I saw the role of of prefect as, as something worthy to aspire to. I've always been happy to serve and to do extra and, you know, to ensure that others are fulfilled and and have joy and and enjoy all that they can. And yes, it was also attractive to me to have the position of honour as as school prefect. In some way, one way, I guess, uh, it would have been nice to have received the recognition that often goes with those positions of honour like a prefect has. So in grade nine, when voting came around, we had to give a speech in front of our whole year level as to why we wanted to be a prefect. The vote was student-led and staff-endorsed. I gave my speech, I sat down with some good winks and encouragement from my friends around me and, and didn't even make it through to the second round. You know, positions of honour are rare. There were only about 10 prefects for nearly 200 kids in my grade. And once you leave school, positions of honour, I think, are even rarer. I mean, you can work your way to them, you can get promoted to them, you can be elected to them, but they're, they're even more rare as adults, I think. You know, Paul was writing this letter of Romans to people who had been taught from birth that they were given a position of honour compared to every other people group on earth because they were born into the Jewish nation. This was the way Jews would teach the next generations to understand the great privilege and honour that they had with their special relationship with God. And in chapter 3 of Romans, which is what we're looking at today, Paul addresses Jews who were in this position of honour and what their responsibilities were now that they were followers of Jesus. What had changed for them? What did it mean for them now that they were followers of Jesus? Did they still have this position of honour as being part of the Jewish nation? Were they still righteous before God because of their covenant relationship with God? Had all of that changed now that Jesus, the Messiah, had come? Well, after arguing that the Spirit's work in Gentiles renders them true Jews and the true circumcision from chapter 2, Paul raises this logical question of whether there is any advantage or value even in being ethnic Jews and and physically circumcised. I mean, we might expect Paul to answer that no advantage or value results from being Jews. Instead, however, he claims that the Jews have great advantages consisting chiefly of of possessing the oracles of God, which 
refers to the Old Testament scriptures and, and on God's promise to save Israel. Look, look with me at the passage, Romans chapter 3 from verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value, well, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone rely, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The Jews still have a privileged position. God still has a plan for the Jews. It's very clear in prophecies about end times that this is the case. What Paul focuses on here, though, is that even though the Jews were unfaithful and refused to trust and obey God, God, however, remains faithful to them and therefore will fulfill his covenant promises, particularly his promise to save them. But does that mean that the Jews can rest on the position of privilege and, and get away with it and get away with sin? Not at all. Paul cites Psalm 51. Let's, let's read a bit, bit of that psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is what the Jewish people would have been reminded of with Paul's words. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me from my sin. Paul is evoking repentance from sin. He is invoking mercy from God for repentant sinners. And not that they should just continue to sin. No, that they would repent and turn from their sin. And in the next couple of verses, Paul explains this relationship between man and God a bit more. You see, some of Paul's Jewish opponents thought that Paul taught a doctrine of cheap grace, that God receives more glory when Christians do evil and then are forgiven. You know, Paul emphatically rejects their view as slanderous. He's like, no, no, that's not at all what he's teaching. And even today, some people improperly count on God's character to excuse them from the consequences of their sins. For example, some believe that since God is love, he will be gracious with them and not punish them. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And a notable historical example or instance in this case 
is of Russian monk Gregory Rasputin, the evil genius of the Romanov family in, the last power, in their last years of power in Russia. Rasputin taught and, and exemplified the doctrine of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He held that as those who sin most require most forgiveness, a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys each time he repents more of God's forgiving grace than any ordinary sinner. He got it very wrong. God is just. He would judge both Jew and Greek. And God is righteous. And we can see the stark contrast between God who is righteous and we who are not. But still, were the Jews better off than the other nations around them? Given their position of, of honour and privilege covenantally, given that they had the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, since God had revealed so much about himself to them, were they better off? Well, let's find out from verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul asks. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, and Paul cites a few different Psalms here together, when he writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's argument is that there is no difference personally for a Jew or for a Greek. Anyone else who's not a Jew, really. He points out humanity's sinful condition, our sinful speech, and our sinful action. Every single person, without exception, is a sinner. This is the human condition. You know, this passage is one of the most forceful in Scripture that deals with the, de with the total depravity of man. You know, total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as we could be. It means that sin has affected every part of our being. And consequently, there is nothing anyone can do to commend ourselves to a holy God. Now you might be thinking, hang on, Aaron, I do read in the Bible that God is love. Where is his love in all of this? Surely God's love for us comes into play here. And you are correct. You know, God's love is at play but so is his righteousness and justice. You see, if we conceal the truth of our human condition from other people, we are not being kind 
In fact, we're doing them a terrible wrong. It would be wrong to hide a criminal, the sentence, to hide from a criminal the sentence that they are facing unless they're pardoned. Or for a doctor to conceal from a patient a cancer that will destroy them unless removed quickly. Or, or even if you're well acquainted, you know, of, of hidden pitfalls in a path that you take, yet fail to warn someone else of the dangers. You know, this is the picture that Paul has been painting. He's been highlighting the realities of man before God. In verse 20, the law here, as is typically the case in Romans, refers to the Mosaic law. Those under the law, well, they're Jews. But why, does he write, is every mouth left without excuse and condemned before God if the law is addressed only to the Jews? Well, Paul's logic is that if the Jews, who are God's special covenant people, cannot keep the law, then it follows that Gentiles, who are taught much of the law by their consciences, will not avoid God's condemnation either. Verse 20, he says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We know what is sinful, what is against God's will. Whether the Jew who has Mosaic law or the Gentile, a non-Jew, who has the law within us by our conscience, none of us will be justified in the sight of God because it is impossible to keep perfect obedience to God's will. Only one person that walked the earth has ever been able to do that, and that was Jesus. But for the rest of us mere mortals, it's an impossible task. And so there's no difference between the Jews who had a position of privilege through the law and the rest of us. And, and that, if that is where we stay, if that is all we dwell upon, then all is lost and hopeless. But that is not the end of the story. In many ways, really, it's actually just the beginning of our story. This is our starting point. We are all sinners and there is great hope. Let's go with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We can receive God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It is no longer tied to Mosaic law. It is found complete in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the amazing work of the gospel, that God's righteousness is imparted to us through the work of Jesus Christ for those who believe. Our salvation is through faith. Continuing on, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, famous verse this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an act of appeasing God, by his blood to, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If there's a better passage of scripture than than this, then please show it to me. I want to read it again. It's that important. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have all sinned and and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is very different to how our world works. Every man, according to the world's law, is considered innocent until he's proven guilty. How many times have you seen that in movies? You know, innocent until proven guilty. But the word of God takes the opposite approach. God says that man is guilty until he's proven innocent. But it is all who believe, not all who have sinned, who receive justification. And remember, justification is an act. It is something that God does for us. It is when he declares us righteous. But it doesn't make us righteous. We don't suddenly become angelic in nature or appearance. You know, it is not a change in us, but a change in our relationship with God. It is a change in how God sees us, not a change in how we really are. You know, many years ago, I remember my, my dad used to have this drawing of an old hag. And in fact, I searched for it, I found it online, and I printed it off for this occasion. So let me get this right. Yes, here we go. This is us. Ugly, old Hag, this is us. All have fallen short, all have sinned, fallen short. This is us. But then through the gospel, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God declares us righteous and his view of us changes. His view of us is now this. But really, we're still this, right? This is still us, but God's view of us has changed to this. Beauty. We've gone from ugly, which that's really what we are. We are ugly to God, right? But then he views us as beautiful. This is how God sees us because of the work of Christ on the cross. Because of the hope of the gospel that God declares us righteous. This is the blessing of the gospel of righteousness for those who believe. 
It, it is interesting that Paul uses the words passed over. He writes, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What Paul is referring to here is the Old Testament practice of animal sacrifice for atonement of sins. And Paul didn't write forgave. He didn't say because in his divine forbearance, he forgave former sins. He said passed over because that's not what animal sacrifice brought to the Jews. It didn't bring forgiveness. What they received through animal sacrifice was not what we received from Jesus. The blood of the animal sacrifice of Judaism only covered or removed them temporarily. God did not exact a full penalty for sin until Jesus died. It is as though the Old Testament believers who offered the sacrifices for the expiation of sin that the Mosaic law required paid for those sins with a credit card. That's what animal sacrifice was, paying for those sins with a credit card. God accepted those sacrifices as a temporary payment. However, the bill came due later and Jesus Christ, well, he paid off the entire bill. He he paid off the bill in entirety. And this is Paul's main point here. God can declare sinners righteous because Christ has paid the penalty for their sins by dying in their place. His death satisfied God's demand against sinners completely. Now God declares righteous those who trust in Jesus Christ as their substitute. So having explained and shown off what justification is, Paul continues in verse 27 to reaffirm that it is only available by faith. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his, this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Faith is the key that unlocks the gospel. The only law law that applies to us now is the law of faith. Our justification is not through the law, but through faith in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Jews were often inclined to boast because of their privileges. However, there is no place for boasting in this plan of salvation because God's provision of salvation by faith springs from a different kind of law, the law of faith, the key to the gospel. This law of faith is not a works-based law. You cannot earn God's favour. Salvation becomes ours by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is what God requires, not works. You know, some people have difficulty understanding that faith is not a work. 
while faith does involve doing something, trusting, the Bible never regards trusting God as a meritorious work. It regards faith, rather, as the act of believing a statement and relying on the truthfulness of the one who made it. When God says whoever believes on him, that is his son Jesus, has eternal life in John 3.16, faith involves accepting that promise as true. Someone has compared saving faith to, to reaching out to accept a gift that someone offers, like a Christmas present, for example. You've got to put your arms out to receive the gift. But that act of putting your arms out doesn't constitute doing something that earns the gift. The gift was given. We don't earn salvation. It is a gift of God given freely to those who accept it by faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the gospel. Faith is the key that unlocks the righteousness of God being declared over us. You know, I quite enjoy watching movies and I have all my life. There is one scene that, that sticks in my mind from an Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade movie. Indy's searching for the Holy Grail and he comes out of an opening in a cliff face and ahead of him is a massive cavernous gap, completely impossible to pass from this side to another cliff face over there and it just drops away to darkness and, and impending death and doom if you fell down this, this massive cavernous gap. An impossible pass, you just could not leap, you couldn't do anything to, to cross this. And he reads from his notebook these words, only a leap from the lion's head may he prove his worth. And then he says, impossible, no one can jump this. And he comes to the conclusion that it is a leap of faith. And so he, he stretches out one leg, he stretches it out in front of him and, and he steps off the cliff edge and steps onto what seems to be an invisible bridge spanning the gap. The camera pulls away and to the side and, and reveals the platform had been constructed to perfectly blend into and disappear into the wall on the other side. And yes, in, in many ways, it is just as much a leap of faith to trust God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis in his book, Me Christianity, wrote this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level um, with, with a man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so my question to you today is this. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in God and that what he says is true? Do you have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross? Do you have faith that Jesus rose on the third day and conquered death? Do you have faith that God loves you and has given you this gift of the gospel to save you? The gift of the gospel which God declares you righteous. It is by faith alone that we unlock the gospel. Faith is the key that unlocks the righteousness of God being declared over us. So maybe we need to take that leap of faith and maybe you need to take that leap of faith for the first time today. Or maybe you need to take that leap of faith again. Maybe you need to take that leap of faith to accept Jesus Christ and what he's done for you to accept by your faith in Jesus Christ, God's declaration over you as righteous, not through anything that you do, but by simply opening your arms to receive the blessing and gift of the hope of the gospel in your life. You know, it's not something that anyone else can do for you. You need to take that leap of faith yourself. You know, next week we're going to learn from the example of Abraham who took a leap of faith. But today, you can be that example of faith. You can take that leap of faith and step into all that God has for your life. You know, that doesn't mean that your life will be easy. In fact, it, it might even get harder. But taking that leap of faith means that your life will be significant and worthwhile. Your life will matter more than it ever could before. You know, Max Licardo once said, God never said that the journey will be easy, but he did say that the arrival will be worthwhile. And that gives us great hope. Hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel in which God declares us righteous by faith. Do you have that hope? If not, you can. And if you do, then I, I encourage you to continue to step out in faith. Continue to trust the Lord through all things. Continue to walk by faith through all that life throws at us all the time from every angle right now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we have no response other than gratitude for what you've done for us. What you've done for us through your great love for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, your son, whom you sent to pay the penalty of our sins, granting us through faith your declaration over us as righteous. This is nothing that we deserve, but we are humbled before you by your love and grace towards us. May we continue to step out in faith and honour your sacrifice. May we continue to trust in you through all circumstances and everything that life continues to throw at us. 
May we walk by faith in the calm assurance that you are sovereign over all and that you care for each one of your children so deeply. May we respond in kind and be bold in our faith and trust in you right now and the world that we walk within. May we honour the righteousness that you declare over us and do everything with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we can to do your will. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for joining with us once again. Look forward to seeing you soon. Blessings.